I invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to go through half of that chapter today, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. As you're turning there, I'll mention, I forgot to mention during announcements that as we look for a youth ministry leader, we do have a team involved in that, a search team. That's Russ and myself, along with Kaylee Oquist, Liz Stone, Tim Hoffman, Carly Hebert. Have I forgotten anybody? All right, I did good. So be praying for them. We're thankful for them for uh, volunteering and using their time for that. And pray the Lord brings the right person to help and serve us. 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 11, I'll read... 11 verses out of the ESV translation. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is, be, is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I will admit every once in a while I come to a passage in Scripture and I wonder to myself, how, how relevant is this for us? I'm not sure how it immediately applies to us in our situation. And it's a little bit how I felt as I got here to 1 Corinthians 6 because I, I tried to think, in the history of CBC, have there been cases of people in the church suing one another? And I don't know the answer to that. I don't think it's happened in the years I've been here, but it seems like a rather rare occurrence. So I wondered... Does this sort of thing really happen? Is there any immediate application for this? And I promise you this is true. As I was studying this passage this week, I needed a mental break and I just checked, logged on to social media and I found that there is a prominent evangelical pastor suing a Christian theologian for defamation. This prominent pastor was in the running to be president of a large evangelical denomination and there is a, a certain theologian, a scholar, an author who I really like, who had been critical of him. And this prominent pastor feels like that theologian's criticism cost him the presidency 
and he is suing that theologian for defamation to the tune of $750,000. And if you want, you can go online and find this pastor's sermon on 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 11, where he admonishes his congregation that we should let such things go. As ridiculous as that is, it reveals something about us that in our sinful flesh, we do not like it when our status, our image, our reputation, or our checkbooks are targeted. And then as we reflect on this passage, we come to realize this isn't just about litigation. This is about Christians who fight with one another over earthly things. We recognize that something is wrong when Christians take each other to court like this, when they battle with one another. And as we hear about a prominent pastor suing somebody, we, we, we have a little bit of revulsion in us, and we should. What I want to do today is examine why that is, and ask the question, why are public disputes between believers a scandal to the church? I'll repeat that. Why are public disputes between Believers, a scandal to the church. Why is it that when this happens, the church is scandalized? Why is it this becomes a stain on the church, an embarrassment for us to a watching world? And of course, this doesn't just apply to prominent people in public battles. It applies to our own hearts and our own minds as we fight with one another, as we have trouble forgiving one another, even as we do business together. This is a passage for all of us who might hold on to bitterness or want to fight for our own way. It's a passage that asks what our priorities will be. Will our priorities be the things of this earth or the things of following Jesus? Why are public disputes between believers a scandal to the church? We'll walk through the text and I'll find, we'll find three answers to that question. And all the answers have to do with who we are and who we will be in Jesus Christ. It is our position in Christ ultimately that makes this kind of thing a scandal. I'll show you what I mean. First, in verses 1 through 6, in verses 1 through 6 we learn that these public disputes are a scandal because in Christ we are more equipped to make judgments. And I'll explain what I mean by that. that in Christ... We are more equipped to make judgments. These disputes ought to be handled very often in the church rather than before a watching world. Because we have something in the church, in Christ, the world does not. We'll see what Paul means. Verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. So here Paul brings up the instance when one has a grievance against another. And it's important for us to understand exactly what Paul's talking about. 
Notice how he refers to these disputes in verse 2. He calls them trivial cases. This is important. What Paul has in mind are what we might call civil suits. These are civil cases, civil disputes, things that might be decided on Judge Judy. In Roman courts, these were cases having to do with legal possession, fraud, injury, breach of contracts, damages, that kind of thing. So the Roman courts would make a distinction between these types of civil cases. And that's what Paul is talking about. This is different than what would be called criminal cases. Criminal cases would have to do with murder, rape, theft. Those are not disputes. Those are violence. And that's not what Paul is talking about. So he's talking about civil cases. The text in the Greek kind of almost reads ordinary things. Things of daily life. It's important that we note that distinction because someone might wonder, well, what does this have to do with Romans 13? Romans 13 tells us that the state is given by God power to wield the sword and to punish the evil. So how does this, which seems to be telling us not to go to the state, but to settle things in-house, how does this relate to Romans 13? And the answer is, Romans 13 is talking about punishing crimes and keeping order and restraining evil. This is disputes between people, feuds. There's a difference between violence and abuse and brotherly disputes. That distinction is important because there have been churches and even denominations that have gone to 1 Corinthians 6 in cases like sexual abuse or assault and said, no, we need to settle these things in-house in the church. That's not what Paul's talking about. And it's an unjust use of this passage when somebody is attacked or hurt or violated to say, no, we have to handle this in the church. We don't go to the courts or go to the police. That's an abuse of the text. That's not what Paul's talking about. We have Romans 13 for those kinds of things. And the state has the authority by God to wield the sword and execute judgments. But in these ordinary matters, these disputes between believers, Paul is appalled that the church is taking them, he says, before the unrighteous instead of the saints. Paul's appalled that in these disputes and Christians suing one another and over financial things, things of reputation and that kind of stuff, that they're taking them before unrighteous people. And what Paul's talking about is that the Roman courts were, were well known in history for a lot of corruption. Uh, it's well known that those who had status, those who had privilege, those who had money and were kind of part of the elite, that they could twist the courts to their own advantage, and very often they preyed upon those who did not have those things. So if you had power, if you had wealth, the, the courts would be to your advantage. The Roman courts were known for corruption and for favoring wealthy people. And it may be even that in the church, the more wealthy Corinthians were taking advantage of the less wealthy And Paul is adamant that these trivial disputes should be handled by the saints. Why? He says, do you not know Christians will judge the world? Now, if you've been following along in this series and in 1 Corinthians, you might be confused at this point. 
Because Paul's talked about judgment a lot, and it sounds like he said a lot of different things. So earlier in chapter 2, Paul said, we should not judge one another. And there he's talking about, we should not judge our ministries or fruitfulness or faithfulness until the end, because then God will reveal all things. So he's talking about his ministry verse is the professional rhetoricians, and Paul's saying, be careful about making judgments about the success and fruitfulness of ministries until the end of time. So Paul's saying, in that instance, do not judge. God will be the judge. But then in chapter 5, Paul says, we should judge Christians inside the church. But there he's talking about disciplining sin. In the case of assessing and disciplining sin in the church, we should judge one another. And says, he says, we ought to judge one another, those inside the church, but we don't judge those outside the church. So remember he said that in 1 Corinthians 5. Why? That's God's job to judge those outside. That's not what we're here to do. Here in this life, we aren't to judge the world. We make judgments inside. Now Paul says in chapter 6, and don't you know we're going to judge the world? But again, he's talking about a different context. He's saying, in the end, not in this life, but in the end, when all is sorted out, we will have a place of rule and judgment over the nations. What does that mean? What's Paul getting at specifically? He's not saying that we will all individually be judging everybody else, so we'll all sit with robes and gavels and we'll make individual assessments of people and people will line up before us like Peter before the pearly gates and we're going to judge them. That's not what he's saying. We as individuals won't judge others, but in our union with Christ, we collectively will be the kings and queens over this world and we will in that capacity judge the world. It starts from an understanding that Jesus himself will be the judge all throughout Scripture. There are references to Jesus who will judge the world. Matthew 16.27, John 5.27, Acts 17.31. All those places talk about Jesus who will judge all things in the end, who will be the judge. And if we are united to Christ, and we are by the Spirit, then we also will take place in that judgment. We will be united with him in his rule. And Paul says, you should know this. Like, do you not know this? Are you not aware of this? This is basic Christian theology to Paul. That in the end, you will rule with Christ. The Old Testament talked about it. Daniel 7.22 says, The Ancient of Days, God, the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Paul says, you already told about this. Daniel told you about it. In the end, you will possess the kingdom. God will give you to be judges and kings over the nations. So what Revelation 2, 26-27 says, Jesus promises this to Christians. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. Those are the words of Jesus. God will grant me authority to rule and to reign, and you will rule and reign with me. 
You church, you Christians, you are royalty. Do you not realize what your future is as ruling over the nations? In fact, you will somehow in some way even judge angels. That's what Paul says. What does that mean? You're going to judge angels. Well, throughout Christian history, this has pretty much been interpreted one way, that this is referring to demonic beings. Angels is a broad category, category and we're talking about the bad angels. Now you, as a church, will stand over them in judgment by virtue of your union with Christ. Jude 6 says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So Jude talks about angels who left their position kept in chains until judgment at the great day, final judgment, they'll be judged, cast out, expelled from the kingdom, condemned forever. You as a church, by your position in Christ, who you are in him, will be judged over them. And again, Paul says, don't you know this? Don't you realize who you are? What your future is? you may need to have a higher understanding of who you are in Christ and what your destiny is. What your future position, what your future glory will be. And if that is true, if that's who you are to be, can't you handle this stuff about money and reputation here in this earth? Like if you're going to judge in the end and be lofty and kings and queens and Jesus Christ and royalty with him and judging over the nations, can't you figure this stuff out? It's an argument from greater to lesser. If you can bench 300, can't you handle 50? If you can run a marathon, you can walk to the mailbox. If you're going to be involved in something so glorious, why are you struggling over something so pitiful, like your reputation and your finances? When the world's wealthy people get together, they don't argue over the check. When wealthy people eat at Applebee's, they don't fight over the tab. It's nothing to them. It's how you ought to see yourself. You are the world's wealthiest people in Christ. Why are you fighting over such things? Can't you figure that out? And yet you take them before those despised in the church, is what Paul says. ESV translates it actually a little bit softly. ESV says those who have no standing. And Paul's a little bit stronger in his language. He uses the word for scorned, those despised in the church. There's a lot of debate about what that means. I think the ESV and most modern translations translate it well. It's a question that Paul's asking. Why do you take it before people who don't have a place in the church who aren't part of you? Who don't understand the things of God, who don't have the righteousness of God, who don't have the spirit of God? Why do you give it over to them to figure it out? Shouldn't you be able to handle this? Aren't you the people who who stand in line with Moses and Moses figured out how to try cases? Had his help from his uncle. You know, set up leaders will judge cases, but you can figure this out. We stand in the line of Moses. We have Jesus Christ. We have his righteousness. We have his spirit. We have his wisdom. We have his discernment. We have everything in 
Christ, how come you can't figure this out? I think we as a church often sell ourselves short as to what we can figure out amongst ourselves. And very often, things that we ought to be able to determine amongst each other, we hand and outsource to the world around us to figure our stuff out for us. And Paul's saying we ought not to do that. Now, I'm not saying we never use professional services. We have a lawyer in our midst. I wouldn't want to say we never go to lawyers, right? That's not the point I'm making. But I do think very often we forget who we are and we start thinking like earthly people and start fighting over silly things or thinking that we, we desperately need somebody else to help us with this. The world has to help us with this because we can't figure out and we should be stopping, maybe, to open up Scripture, see what it says, see how the Spirit of God might lead us, and talk amongst ourselves and figure it out. And that's what Paul's getting at here. You have the Spirit of God, you have Scripture, you have the community. So much of the problems in your life, you should really be able to figure out just with some prayer. But you look at horoscopes. Where's your faith? in who Jesus is and who you are, and the power of the Spirit, and the power of the Word, to help handle these things. So Paul's shaming them. says, do you not know who you are? Isn't any of you wise? Which is a direct shot at the Corinthians, because they thought they were wise. It says, is no one among you wise enough to figure this stuff out? And then he says, what's worse, you take it before unbelievers. You take it before unbelievers bringing a bad reputation upon the church, a horrible witness to the church by taking your silly fights and bringing them before the world. Uh, You would have to check my mom on this, but I think this is a true story. So if you ever see her, you can ask her. But it turns out, I have several brothers, I have one younger brother, and we kind of fought a lot growing up. Sometimes brothers do that, right? And get in a few quarrels. He's two years younger than I am, so, so we fought often. And there was one time in particular where he had a friend over who was staying the night and often had friends and hang out, and it was in the morning, and the friend was over, and we, who knows what we were fighting about. We were in elementary and middle school at the time, but we were fighting about something, and it was a particularly vicious one. And his friend, who I believe didn't have any brothers, his mom was coming to pick him up. And as she came through the door, she just happened to see my brother and I in the midst of a fight, and I think I was pushing his head into the ground, and I may have had a clump of his hair in my hand, and that's what she walked into. And that friend never came over again. (laughs) That's how that story ends. She came in and saw just this chaotic house of brothers fighting each other, pulling each other's hair out, and boy, my son's never playing there again. And why would I leave him with them when they're just fighting amongst each other all the time? And that's what the world thinks. When Christians argue and sue one another and fight and go on social media and try and prove each other wrong all the time, and the world says, why would I want to be involved in that? All they do is fight. All they do is argue. You can get that anywhere else. about witness before the world. You guys are supposed to be brothers. Paul uses the word brothers four times here. He's making a point. Your family. And yet you fight with one another. Jesus didn't tell us the world would know who his disciples are by the way we win victories over one another. The world will know you're my disciples by the way you have all the right answers. 
and the way you put one another down. And the world will know you're my disciples by how you love one another. You should be able to handle this stuff, is basically what Paul's saying. You're more equipped to make judgments in the world outside. You have everything you need in Christ. And in fact, you probably shouldn't even be fighting in the first place. That's his next point. Verses 7 through 8 more quickly. We'll go through these. Second reason these disputes are such a scandal, because in Christ, we ought to be, we are more willing to be wronged. In Christ, we should not be fighting in the first place. In Christ, we are more willing to be wronged. If we're truly disciples of Jesus, then it should be possible for us to, as people say, take the L, take the loss, to suffer wrong, suffer being defrauded, suffer being hurt, be willing to be wronged. Why? Because you're in Christ. Verse 7 says, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. So Paul's saying, well, first, if you have these lawsuits, you should handle them in-house because you can handle this. It's beneath you. And second, you shouldn't even have these things in the first place. You shouldn't even be fighting. The fact that you already are, fi- are fighting is, means you've already lost. And again, the ESP translates this softly. The way Paul says it is, it's an, a total and utter defeat for you. It's a complete loss that you're fighting about this. And as soon as you've gotten to that point, you've already wandered from Jesus. So a- as a parent now, I'm starting to say things that I thought were cliche before, but I now find myself saying them because I'm realizing the wisdom in them and how useful they are or are not in the moment. But you say things that you hear elsewhere. And one of those things is, I don't care who started it. Right? So, so you go in and you see and hear your kids fighting over something, and your answer is, I really don't care who started it because immediately both the plaintiffs, are the, the, they're beginning their best legal <laughs> defense before you. They're the one who did this. They're the one who did this. And you say, "Ah, it doesn't matter to me. And then probably, in most cases, one of them truly was wrong. Like, usually one of them is, you know, in the right. And so they feel like, that's really unjust. And how dare you? How come you can't hear my case? And you say, actually, it doesn't matter. And it feels unjust to them. But from the outside looking in, you know the fact that you're fighting over the Peppa Pig toy, that means you've already lost. Like, you've already gone wrong. It doesn't matter who started it. The fact that you're both keeping it up means you've wandered from Jesus. What you're fighting over is insignificant. It's not important. Whether you were the one who started it or not, even if you're the victim here in this case, how important is that really? Aren't you willing to be wronged for the sake of the love of your brother? or sister. That's Paul's point here. Christians fighting over money, fame, reputation, honor, small stuff. Why not be wronged? Why not be defrauded? Is God able to take care of you? It really is a matter of whether or not you will follow Jesus. I want you to listen to what Jesus says. You've heard these verses many times, but listen to them clearly. Listen to what Jesus says about these kinds of things in Matthew 5. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. 
But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is the teaching of Jesus Christ. If anybody seeks to wrong you, let them in the name of Jesus Christ. Be defrauded. Have your money taken. What is your coat? And Jesus practiced what he preached. Jesus was wronged. He was defrauded. He was violated. He was hurt. He was defamed. He suffered loss. He did all of that to pay the penalty that you should have paid, that I should have paid, so that we could be forgiven and reconciled by God. Jesus was hurt, but he didn't fight back. So I ask you, should you not also be willing to be wronged? Is your case more egregious than Jesus's? Is the sin that you have suffered, the, the violation that has been, occurred to you, is that more egregious than what has been done to Jesus? Are you a greater victim than him? Should you get your way over against Jesus? Are you more innocent than Jesus? Do you have the moral high ground above Jesus? Is your cause more noble than his? Is the sin against you greater than what Jesus endured? And if he could endure it, and if you're supposed to follow him, then can you endure it as well? But you don't know what they've done. Well, whatever they've done, you did more than that to Jesus. You nailed, by your sin, all of us, you and I, we nailed the only innocent person who ever lived to a cross. That's what our sin has done. So none of us have the moral high ground in any dispute to say, I'm the victim here and you're the one who's wrong. We are all to blame. So in these matters of finances and disputes... Can't we be wronged a little bit? Can't we forgive if someone has hurt us? We follow Jesus Christ who prayed from the cross, forgive them. F.F. Bruce said that to suffer wrong and be defrauded was the more excellent way because of the way of Christ who endured injustice without seeking redress. So we also should endure wrong. It doesn't mean that those who hurt others are off the hook. And Paul gets there in verse 8, but you yourselves wrong and defraud. You hurt others. You shouldn't. You wrong and defraud other people. How dare you? But even if you are the one who's wronged and defrauded, can you not endure in Christ? And if you are in Christ, there are two errors in the fight. There's the error of violating the other person, or there's the error of seeking vengeance, trying to fight to get your way, to protect your stuff. So why these public disputes are such a scandal and were a scandal in Corinth? Because we claim to be in Christ, who suffered wrong for our salvation. And who knows what might happen 
when you endure the same thing, maybe that will be the way of reconciliation. At the very least, you'll show that you are not owned by your possessions, you're not owned by your reputation, you don't live for the things of this earth, but live for your eternal fellowship with Jesus Christ. In Christ, we should be willing to be wronged. And third, in Christ, we are more concerned with eternal wealth. That's the third reason Paul gives these public disputes are a scandal. Because in Christ, we are more concerned with eternal wealth. That's really what verses 9 through 11 are all about. Verses 9 through 11 are about our eternal inheritance. I'll show you. Verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So here, maybe the thing that most stands out is we have this list of sins in verses 9 and 10. But you'll see around those is Paul talking about the inheritance of the kingdom. This is about who will and who will not inherit the kingdom of God. He says, do you not know that such people will not inherit the kingdom? Paul is making a point about eternal inheritance, internal wealth, what we will receive from God in the end. That's what this is about. Paul's saying this is the thing that we need to be concerned about, our eternal inheritance, not your fights over your money in this world. And again, Paul's, sees this as basic truth. Do you not know? This is basic Christian theology. There are certain people who will inherit the kingdom of God and there are certain people who won't. And Paul makes a distinguishing, uh, discerns between the two. And Paul says, if you commit to a certain kind of life that is opposed to Jesus, you will not inherit the kingdom. He says here strongly, do not be deceived. He repeats that because it's easy for us to be deceived about this thing. There are a great number of people who are claiming Christianity who say it actually really doesn't matter how you live as long as you have some kind of ethereal trust in a God of some sort. Most people in the world, I think, believe that we are free to live however we want and then God or whatever being is obligated to accept us in the end. And Paul's saying, do not be deceived. That's not how the kingdom works. He says, if these sins characterize your life, then you will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is a warning. And it's a warning tailored specifically to the Corinthians. So let's go through the list. We'll go through them quickly. We're not going to spend a ton of time. But just as we go through, there are ten things that Paul mentions. Sexual immorality, which is fornication. Having sex outside of the commitment of marriage. That's what that is. It's a broad word for sexual immorality. Idolatry, worshiping false gods instead of the true God. Adultery, specifically sexual activity uh, with someone who is not your spouse while you're married. And then he says men who practice homosexuality. And he's being very frank here. The actual Greek is two words that refer to the passive and dominant partner in the homosexual act. That's what Paul says there. So our translations soften that for us. But there are two things that he's referring to. That culture, part of status of being elite for men was often having a wife and then having others on the side and having dominance over them. And Paul is saying both the passive person and the dominant person in that are committing great sin. 
thieves, those who take from others, the greedy, those who consume everything for themselves, drunkards who spend their life consuming mind-altering substances, those who are constantly intoxicated, revilers, those who abuse others with their speech, swindlers, those who take others by force or by con, those who take from other people. Paul lists all those things of people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul is not saying that anybody who's ever committed these things or anybody who struggles with these things or if you commit these things once, that you're out. Paul is saying that if this characterizes your life currently and through your life, if this characterizes who you are and if you can be described as one of these people, then you will not inherit the kingdom of God. It is a warning. It's a warning specifically to the Corinthians. Think about this list. Do you notice any trends in the list? What do they have to do with There are basically two kinds of sin that Paul's dealing with, sexual sin and sin around possessions. And those are the two things that the Corinthians struggled with most. He's targeting them with this. These are not the only sins out there, but these are the things that Corinth is struggling with, so Paul chooses them. It's not because he particularly hates these kind of people. It's because he knows This is where Corinth struggled. So he's listing these things as a warning. And then there's the encouragement. These do not have an inheritance in the kingdom, but you do. Why? It says, such were some of you. You used to be defined by these things, but you are no longer. It's a reminder to humility. Before you go judging everybody else, remember who you used to be. Some of you used to fall in this camp. So you have no room to look down upon the other. And it's also an encouragement because you're no longer this person. Something changed. By the grace of God, you are different. And you cannot be described this way any longer. This isn't what defines you. You're not a drunk. You're not an adulterer. You're not an idolater. You are in Christ. You're different. You're no longer a son of the devil, so don't act like one. How did that change happen? And Paul says, you are washed clean. Symbolized in baptism, you are washed clean. Your sins removed. The stain no longer there. You are now clean in Jesus Christ. You are sanctified. You are set apart for God. You are given a holy purpose. You are made His to live for Him. You are washed clean, filth removed, set apart, sanctified for Him, and you are justified. And Paul very intentionally uses a courtroom term there. You are justified. Before the court of God, you have been given a not guilty verdict. You're taking each other to court over this stuff. Here's the court ruling that matters. Before God, you are justified, declared, not guilty, washed clean, sanctified, justified. In a word, you are saved. You have been saved. And how did this happen? Who's responsible for all this? It wasn't you. You didn't do it. Who could do all of that? 
What does Paul say? You are washed clean, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What he is saying is that all three members of the Trinity were at work in your salvation. The triune God, he's the one who is your advocate, who has come and saved you. The Lord Jesus Christ lived and died and rose again so that you could inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus accomplished your salvation. The Spirit of God applied salvation to you, bringing you from death to life, changing your heart so that you could live by the power of him in Jesus Christ. Jesus accomplished salvation. The Spirit applied salvation, and God ordained it. It was his idea in the first place. God the Father ordained it all to be so that you could live with him forever. No less than the triune God was at work in your salvation. And if that is true, why are you fighting over money? If the eternal triune God has conspired together for you to live with him forever in his eternal kingdom, then why are you fighting over stupid things? You have everything in God himself. What do you have to prove, gain, or lose? What is actually at risk? Why do you fight for your reputation? Why do you want to justify yourselves before other people constantly? Why are you so concerned that somebody owes you something? The triune God himself has ensured your salvation. Isn't that sufficient? Or do you want something else? Is life with a triune God enough for you to endure this life? It's Paul's gospel reasoning. You've been given everything in Christ, so you have no need to fight for more. In Christ, you will judge the world. You can handle the small things. In Christ, you've been forgiven, so you can be wronged. In Christ, you've been washed, sanctified, and justified to inherit an eternal kingdom. So don't live like the unrighteous world around you. Would you pray with me? Father, help us, we pray. Help us to live a life that is in accordance with the gospel that saves us. That we have been washed clean, sanctified, justified. We've been given everything we need in Jesus Christ. And Lord, let that impact the way we view our life in this world to be willing to be hurt and not retaliate against the other. To be willing to be wronged and not have our life threatened by it, to not seek vengeance upon others. And Lord, to trust that in Christ we have what we need. We can work through things of this life together. We can trust you to care for us. Lord, I pray that in... Uh, 
because of who we are in Jesus Christ, that we would love one another really well. Even in disagreement, even in different perspectives, that we would view one another as brothers and sisters who have the same Father. Thank you for the salvation we have in Jesus Christ. Amen.